0: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research.
1: Welcome to AUKUS Amplified, the podcast series brought to you by the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. This is one of seven podcasts highlighting a few of the many outstanding papers presented at the 30th annual meeting of the association, including the awards papers. My name is Stefan Obini. I'm on faculty at UCSF, and I'm the chair of the Digital Health and Social Media Committee at AUKUS. I'll be joined this host by Dr. Sean Patel from the Southern California Permanente Medical Group. He's also a member of our committee.
2: Dr. Patel, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Sean Patel, and today we have the pleasure of having two guests with us today to discuss their wonderful research. So that would be Dr. Hartford, James
1: Hartford, and Bradley Grau from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation. Gentlemen, welcome.
0: Great to be here.
1: Thanks for having us, Stefani. The title of the paper is Reducing the Incidence of Perioperative Calcar Fractures with a Collard Implant When Using the Direct Anterior Approach. Thank you again for taking the time as authors or your practices to join us. So, Dr. Hartford, you're the lead author on this paper. Can you take us a little bit through your thought process of what inspired you to look at this project? Thanks for asking.
3: What inspired me for the project was I started doing the anterior approach back in 2006 when Dr. Mata brought it out to uh, the United States. And what's advertised is a great procedure and no problems. Everything goes well. And after about the first hundred patients, I realized that there were these episodic calcar fractures that were occurring, which, of course, is a big problem, especially when they were occurring postoperatively. I presented my experience at a meeting at the Association of Bone and Joint Surgeons, and one of my colleagues said, well, why don't you use a collar? So I started using a collar, and then I went and did a retrospective study on what's the difference in our fracture rate.
1: And uh, Dr. Grau, you're the senior author in this paper. How did this topic relate to some of the rest of the work you've done or you've seen that interest you?
0: Yeah, thanks again for having us both, Stefano. And I may be listed as the senior author on this uh, paper, but it's a little out of the ordinary. I would say Dr. Hartford's actually the lead author and the senior author. But his work has been extremely relevant to my practice because I adopted the anterior approach really following his lead because I was trained in posterior approach surgery and I was able to learn through Dr. Hartford's work starting about 2015. So this has helped me on my learning curve have a lower complication rate than perhaps some other surgeons have. And I think these post-operative fractures and limiting them has been extremely impactful to helping our patients recover well from surgery.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, Dr. Patel, would you mind taking us through the research itself and getting them to nuts and
2: bolts so we can draw out some of these conclusions? Sure. It sounds great. So, Dr. Hartford, i um, curious to know how your study was exactly designed. You mentioned that you compared your retrospective cohort of perhaps uncollared implants to your newer series of collared implants. Is that the case? Is that how you designed the study? Yeah, that's pretty much the case,
3: but we threw out the first hundred non-collared implants to take away
2: the learning curve. Okay, very good. And so what time period do these cases occur in? They occurred
3: from about 2008 all the way up until about 2014, maybe
2: 2016. Gotcha. So a, a fairly large series, about eight or nine years. How many patients were included?
3: There were close to about 350 in each group.
2: Each group, okay. And if you had to summarize your key findings comparing the two groups, what would your main takeaway be from what you found?
3: My main takeaway from the paper is that if you use a collar, you're not going to have the problem of a post-operative calcar
2: fracture. And that's going to save you a lot of trouble down the road. So as you know, there's many reasons that calcar fractures can occur. Some include stem design, some include technique. So particularly with regard to your technique, can you give us a little bit more context about your specific procedure? Do you use a table? What kind of releases do you do? And particularly regarding your stem type, is it a brooch-only stem or a rasp-type stem? Yeah, these are all brooch-onlys. They're impaction graft broaches.
3: I use the uh, HANA table. I do fairly extensive releases. I'm not afraid to release the piriformis So I want to have a good exposure and make sure that I don't have too much stress on the greater trochanter when I'm doing the broaching. But the procedure is pretty much the same throughout the course of when I did this study. And really the only difference was the type of implant. The two implants are exactly the same except for the collar. And these are double wedged stems.
2: Okay. And is this the kind of stem you use on all of your approaches or something you particularly employ with the anterior approach?
3: This is a stem that I use on basically the anterior approach. After a year of doing the anterior approach, I pretty much am 98%, 99% anterior approach. So it's basically all my cases.
2: Got it. Got it. Very good. And were there certain cases that you started to use a collar on or all cases and you had a, a complete switch in your practice? Are there specific indications for where you think a collar is, is more useful than others? Yeah, when when we looked at when
3: I looked at my data originally, I identified the patients that are most likely to have a fracture were the females and obese. So, you, obese females were highly susceptible to calcar fractures, and so those were the first ones. And then after doing about twenty of them, I felt it seemed so easy that. I said, why not just do it on all my patients?
2: Sure, sure. And you noted a significant difference between the calcar fracture rate in your collared cohort compared to your uncollared cohort. What was the magnitude of that difference?
0: Dr. Graw here, having the data in front of us, the non-collared cohort had a 1.5% fracture rate, so that was six total fractures, and the collared group had actually no post-operative fractures. So let's Very differentiate
1: good. there a little bit between intraoperative and postoperative. I also want to just make a point. You're using essentially the same stem, but one has a collar and one doesn't, correct? So We're not looking at variations in implant design as a potential variable, correct?
3: Absolutely. That's what I like about the study. It is the exact same implant.
1: Yeah. Dr. Graw, well, you brought this up, a uh, variation between intraoperative fractures and postoperative fractures. Do you think they're just one, the same, the the postoperative fractures simply extensions of minor hairlines that were not picked up at surgery, or do you think that they're de novo fractures?
0: That's a really great question, Stefano, and I think it is on the surgeon to identify those intraoperative fractures. Some can be seen, of course. Others could be microscopic fractures that we can't see. I think the concerning ones that we've seen postoperatively are likely new fractures, and Jim may want to comment on this, but because of the improved early activity uh, after anterior approach, because of less pain, the concern is that people can apply too much load to the bone, especially obese patients leading to that post-operative fracture.
3: I agree with Brad entirely that these post-operative protocols with enhanced recoveries put a lot of stress on the calcar region, especially on the double wedged implants and you always put in some microscopic fractures. There's always gonna be a microscopic fracture. But with the collar, you put the compressive force on the calcar, whereas you don't have the collar, you're gonna have that hoop stress, and then you're gonna blow out any type of microscopic fracture.
1: So let's talk a little bit about this calcar. So you're telling me that every time you put a stem in, you get that calcar to match perfectly and contact the collar on the implant. Is that correct?
3: I wish I could say every time, and we looked at it, and in the final paper, which we're submitting, there's about 18% of the patients that we don't get collar contact.
1: So in that case, how does that implant differ from one that's not collared? That one is pretty much the
3: same as the non collar The only issue, though, is that those ones that we don't get the collar on, they're usually men, and the bone stock is so good that it's not an issue.
1: So are you getting less of a press fit on the college stem then? I personally think I'm getting the
3: same press fit, but theoretically you're probably not because you don't get that millimeter or two of subsidence that you'd normally would get with a non-collar stem.
2: I think that's a great point. You know, a lot of the concerns for folks evaluating whether or not to use a collared implant is the concern about early seeding of the implants and perhaps not getting as tight a a press fit as they would with a traditional non-collared implant. Did you see any issues with early loosening or any technique pros you had for engagement of the collar?
3: No, we haven't had any problems with early roostening. I think partly technique-wise, I make certain that it's pretty line-to-line when we're putting in the implant. I don't want to have an undersized implant. And the second thing is that these are fully coated hydroxyapatite stems, so the ingrowth is very good on them.
1: On growth. (laughs) I'm growth. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a stickler for things like that. So just for the last few minutes, I think it's really important. Tell us exactly how you broach. So yeah, let me just walk you through. You broach to a size, I can't remember the sizing on this, but let's say it's a size three and you got to go to size four. When do you know when to stop? Are you calcar planning when it's quite perfect? Just explain to us, because if I wanted to try this technique tomorrow, I want to make sure that I'm following your technique and the yeah. paper unfortunately doesn't really get into it.
3: When I'm broaching the stem, I'll obviously have templated to a certain size. I broach to where I think it's somewhat tight, and then I remove all lateral bone, and I usually can get a bigger broach in at that point. I don't try to cut the neck as low as possible, so my broaches are always under where the neck cut is. Once I feel I got the correct stem radiographically, that's when I calcar plane it, and then after that, I put the stem in.
1: That's
0: really helpful. That's really, really helpful. And Dr. Graw,
1: you've adopted the same technique or do you have any variants on that?
0: I, I have, having followed Jim's lead. One nuance that's relevant to the question that Dr. Patel had is for, to ensure getting the best press fit you can. Sometimes you may be between sizes and with those with better bone, with this double wedge stem will sometimes actually ream the distal canal to get a better fit. So you can ensure that you're getting bone to bone. That's uncommon, but that's another pearl for some patients with tougher bone to really get that calcar down.
3: I would like to chime in on that. And I agree entirely with Brad. And I think that's a very important point. If you have a very narrow canal it's a wise thing to do to rein the canal up to get a more proximal fit.
2: Yeah, particularly your door A very tight canals, right? What percent of cases are you finding they have to do that in with this kind of stem? Uh, for me, I find it's about 4 or 5%. It's not that many. This whole concept of using a collar or not using a collar, it seems like this could be a concept that you would apply to any approach you use. Do you think it's something specific for the anterior approach, or you can generalize your results to any approach?
3: I think you can generalize it to most approaches, but I think with the anterior approach, because you can get such a good recovery and you can weight bear these patients so quickly that you really are putting force on these patients right away, and that puts them at a higher
2: risk. And all the fractures in the study were all post-op or were any encountered actually intra-op with the broaching technique?
3: We had a few intraoperative calcar fractures, and I would say that is broach-related.
2: Okay. It wasn't upon the final stem impaction trying to get the collar. No,
3: that was all broach related. Okay.
1: Just to be clear. So, while you were broaching, you noted the fracture. It wasn't that you put the stem down or the fracture, right? Exactly. That's a good point you make, Sean. I like that, that the fact that the paper is in the context of the direct anterior approach, but <laughs> the idea of using a calcar or collar fits perfectly against the calcar using a milled interface. There's no reason why this shouldn't apply to posterior hips, which are loaded just as quickly, Jim, (laughs) as I do. I do both and I don't see much difference, but I think it's a really good point. So if we were to sort of come to a conclusion. I think you guys opened with your conclusion, closing your conclusion, that the use of a collared implant, at least in your experience, using a stem that had both a collared and uncollared option, which means that we removed the brooch and the stem as a variable, really did have a really significant impact in your post-operative fracture rate. And they also interoperative, well, the interoperative stuff probably has not to do with the collar. So it's really a post-operative fracture rate and that you would recommend it. I entirely recommend using the
3: design. I, I just think the post-operative calcar fracture is so devastating uh, to the patient and the complication is just hard to recover from that.
1: Why take the chance? Dr. Patel, what do you take from this? Any last minute thoughts?
2: No, I think it's a great topic to, to study and understand. I agree it's a devastating complication and one that you can avoid simply by the simple change in implant type that they've noted. As a technique pro, I think one thing that stood out with your guys' comments is maybe being conservative on your neck resection. To start to so allow you to go down to Calcar Plain to really get that collar engagement to maximize the benefit of using the collar to begin with. So I appreciate that pearl there. And thank you guys for your research here. And
1: uh, Dr. Graw, you have any last minute thoughts?
0: Again, I'd like to mention the, the learning curve for me and how being able to uh, really ride Dr. Hartford's coattails on this technique and deploy the anterior approach for my patients in a safe way because there's been a lot kind of described about the potential complications of adopting a new approach. And I just feel very lucky to have been able to take these small pearls and provide a safer surgery for my patients. So your point
1: being that if you're going to try to adopt the anterior approach, which we know is associated a higher risk of fracture, that it using a collared implant may be a wise thing to do, because it increases the safety margin I correct. Right? I think
0: there's nuances to any approach that's employed for hip replacement, and I think this is a particular nuance that's that's important for the anterior approach.
1: Thank you very much for sharing your insights, gentlemen. This has been a really fun podcast. It's a great paper on the reducing the incidence of perioperative calcar fractures with a collared implant when using the direct anterior approach, but a really thoughtful discussion. Thank you, Dr. Patel, for joining me as co-host. With that, I'd like to close the podcast and thank everyone for participating and invite our audience to listen in to any of our future podcasts in this series.
0: Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.